Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that it is the Lord's day. We thank you that the Lord's day is on a Sunday because that is when you rose from the dead. That is where it all starts. That's where your church starts. That's where our hope starts. That's where our salvation and our joy starts, is with that empty grave. When the disciples ran and looked in and didn't see anybody there, and the women came and they, they intended on anointing the body with spices, and the angel said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is alive. And Lord, on this Lord's day, and as we look towards uh, Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, we do so with hope. Because it doesn't matter uh, what is going on in this world or what will befall us in this world. We know that our hope, our salvation is sure. We have been bought and paid for. We have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And we have everything to look forward to. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for your word that reveals to us uh, this, this hope that we have, this assurance, this confidence that we have. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're watching a sports game and, and a certain team hasn't played well the entire game, and they're losing by a lot as time continues to wind down, you know that there is little to no chance that they're going to come back and win. Or at least send the game into overtime. You know that's, that's most likely not going to happen. Especially if the opposing team has been playing well the entire game. That's just not going to happen. I've, I've watched enough Bills games to know that's not, <laughs> that's not going to happen. It, it's, things are a little bit different now. But I, I've been a lifelong fan, so I know how things have been. The chances are even worse if the team losing is an away team playing a team with home field advantage. And a classic example of this that happens in basically every sport was what happened exactly a month ago in this year's Super Bowl. Uh, the Buccaneers had figured out how to, how to dismantle the Chiefs' O-line, and as good as Patrick Mahomes may be, there's just no way he was going to be able to carry his entire team as the Bucs dominated on both sides of the ball. And so you knew who was going to win by the end of the first quarter, basically. Many times, generally in most sports, the obvious answer is that depending on the league the teams are playing in, the losing team could have thousands of teams uh, of fans booing them and cheering on the winning team. That does a lot to morale, doesn't it? With the environment in the stadium that you're playing in, especially if you're the visiting team, and especially if you're losing. I know if I, I, if I was on the losing team, which is probably why the team is losing in the first place, and, and everything looked very grim, it would be extremely difficult to play out the rest of the game and just not and storm off the field, not, not just do that. In fact, when a team is losing so badly, you just start to feel bad for them at a certain point. You just think, why won't this game end? But what if? What if, imagine with me, what if all of a sudden in that stadium, in this environment, in this situation, tens of thousands of fans started cheering for the visiting and losing team? That would never happen in this, in this world. But just imagine if it did. What would happen if that happened? 
it would probably keep the losing team in the game and might even inspire them to come back and win, right? Several weeks ago, we talked about Jesus' message in the book of Revelation to the church in Laodicea. They trusted in so many things other than Jesus, and Jesus had to call them out for it. In our passage today, a church in another city, the city of Smyrna, has been playing a seemingly losing game against those who want to see the gospel of Jesus Christ disappear. They're being booed at. Their morale is in the basement. Opposite than that to Laodicea, though, Jesus' message to that church in Smyrna is intended to cheer them on, to encourage them, and to inspire them to remain faithful, to stay in the game, and to win that game. In fact, the church in Smyrna is one of only two churches in these first few chapters in Revelation that Jesus has nothing to correct about in that church and only wants to cheer them on. In the game of life, when the church of, at Smyrna was being pummeled by the world who was ruled by Satan, Jesus is the entire fan base of his church, shouting his encouragement until he loses his voice to inspire them to stay in the game to win it. Jesus sets up his credentials in the first verse that we're going to be taking a look at in our passage today, even though the church doesn't necessarily need it. But it's a good reminder even for us as 21st century believers. So if you, if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to Revelation chapter 2. And we're going to be picking up in verse 8. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to, ver to Revelation chapter 2 verse 8 or look it up on your smartphone. Uh, and we read in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last, who was dead and has come to life says this. Here Jesus gives a similar greeting as he did to the Apostle John when he first appears in John's revelatory vision. Like other times that Jesus uses terminology to equate himself with the Father, we read in Isaiah 44, 6, this is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord of Heaven's armies. And then what do we see? I am the first and the last. There is no other God. These are the words of God to the nation of Israel. And we see all these things that he's describing himself as the Lord of heaven's armies. And then he says, I am the first and the last. Everything starts and ends with me. And what does Jesus say in verse 8 of our passage? passage? The first and the last. He's equating himself with the Father here. So anybody who says Jesus never equates himself with the Father in Scripture, they're blatantly wrong. There's an example right there. Jesus is referring to Isaiah 44, 6 here, referring to himself, equating him with the Father. He's the same uh, uh, in, in substance and, and uh, position. I am the first and the last. There is no other God. And then he references Isaiah 48, 12. Listen to me, O family of Jacob, Israel, my chosen one. I alone am God, the first and the last. Again, he references these two passages to equate himself with the Father. I am the first and the last. This is important. Because if life has been blinding the church of Smyrna with negativity, 
Jesus wants to remove that veil of, that veil of distraction and show them that he is in control. He is the one who is first and last. Not this world, not the rulers of this world, not Satan. Nobody except him is the first and the last. He is the one in complete control. And he knows what Smyrna is going through, and he knows what we are going through. Since Jesus is equal to El Elyon, or Most High God, he knows Smyrna's situation. He can take care of them, and he will take care of them. And there's a big reminder to us there, too. I'm sure there are many things in your life right now that threaten to or are dropping a veil between you and Jesus. And it's hard to see him. It's hard to see how he's the first and the last whether it's financial difficulties or the loss of a loved one, the presence of a disease or health condition, family trouble, or something else. There's something that either is threatening to or has already dropped this veil in between you and Jesus. Know that Jesus knows exactly what you're going through. He is the first, he is the last, and be encouraged. He knows exactly what you're going through. If we realign our vision onto Jesus. Everything else gets put into a better perspective. When we look above everything that's going on at earth level right here, right in front of our eyes, and we look above that and we look over that and we fix our eyes on Jesus, every, all of this gets put in a much better perspective. Knowing that he is the first and the last puts everything in a much better perspective. This is the very reason the author of Hebrews exclaims this. Let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. Not just stumbling along hoping we're going to make it, but run with endurance and confidence. How can we do that? We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. We're not focusing on all this other stuff that's happening right in front of our faces. We're keeping our eyes on Jesus. He is the champion who initiates and perfects our faith, the first and the last. He initiates our faith, and at the end of all of it, he's going to perfect it. He who started a good work in you will remain faithful to you until he completes it. He is the first and the last. Jesus is the first and the last. Everything starts and ends with him. He is the one in complete control. Who is he? He is the king. Right? Do we think of him that way? Do we live like that? Do we see everything going on in our lives that way? That he is the king? He bought your life and soul with his blood. You are bought and paid for. There's no question about it. Your soul has been sealed. The Holy Spirit is your down payment. He can allow something to happen to you. He can remove it from you. He can protect you in the midst of it. And he can provide for you. He can, uh, his purpose and his goal and what happens in our lives is whose? His. His own. It's not even up to us. We get no say in it. His purpose and his goal for what happens in our lives is his own, his own reasons. As much as we wish it were different, like we talked about several weeks ago, we have never been the ones in control. 
We've never been the ones in control of our own lives. We've never been the ones in control of, of the world or what happens in the world or what happens in our lives. As much as we wish it were, that, that we're different. So what do we do? We must daily surrender our questions, surrender our confusion, surrender our turmoil, and surrender our joy to him. He is the king. He's always been the king. He's always been the one in complete control. As scary as that seems on the surface, surrendering everything about your life up to God's control is actually the most peace-giving thing we can actually do. Giving it up and saying, God, God, you're the one in control anyways. You're the king. Why am I the one that's holding on to this, thinking I have any control over it? I'm giving it completely over to you. It's under his control anyway. Any control that we think we have over anything in our lives is a mirage. It's only a mirage. It's under his control anyway. All we're doing is recognizing that. In light of who Jesus is in our lives, which in and of itself is a source of encouragement, when you really stop and think about it, Jesus then moves on to his specific encouragement to the church in Smyrna. Beginning part of verse 9, I know your tribulation. I know it. I know what you're going through. I know your tribulation, and I know your poverty, but you are rich. You can see here on this map of, of the ancient Mediterranean Sea, we see here uh, things that we would recognize readily here. We see Italy over here, Sicily, Egypt down here. Uh, this is the Greek area over here. And over here is a, the port city of Asia Minor, Asia Minor named Smyrna. Right here, it's a port city uh, on the coast there. You can see here on the map the city of Smyrna in relation to the other lands bordering the Mediterranean Sea there. Italy, Egypt, Greece, we already went through that. The city of Smyrna itself was a seaport city and actually quite prosperous. So why is Jesus saying to the church at, at, at Smyrna, I know your poverty? The city, the city of Smyrna was actually quite prosperous at this time. It was second only to Ephesus in importance in this area, was actually in competition with them, with Ephesus, and as such had a strong economy. What's interesting historically to note here is that while Smyrna at this time was always playing second fiddle to Ephesus, which was also a thriving seaport, today Ephesus is nothing but a pile of ruins and Smyrna continues to be a thriving seaport. That's very interesting, isn't it? We know what Jesus said to the church in Ephesus. If you don't come back to your first love, then you'll lose everything. Meanwhile, the city of Smyrna is still a thriving seaport today. The prosperity of the people living around the believers within Smyrna was apparently foreign to those who were part of the church in Smyrna. They didn't get that. They didn't understand that. They didn't have it. The word for poverty here is tokaya, the extreme form of poverty or complete destitution, rather than just the general term for a poor person, penes. The word here used is tokaya, extreme destitution. That's what the believers in, Ephes in, in Smyrna were having to deal with. This concept is pretty foreign to us living here in America. We are more or less people who are generally penes, we can still get food, we can still get clothing, we can still get shelter. Any one of us can claim we're poor, but we still have no clue 
what destitution, especially in third world countries, really means. We have no clue. But the third world destitution is what Smyrna was living through. What this tells us is that our brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago in the city of Smyrna, what, this, what their faith cost them, it cost them everything in this world. They had absolutely nothing. If you were not an emperor worshiper or a Roman or Greek god worshiper, the next best thing was to be Jewish. Who generally, they generally enjoyed less persecution and they enjoyed an unwritten exemption from emperor worship. But here was the problem. Christians in this location and time period were not considered Jewish. They were considered a suspicious sect of Judaism. Who were expelled by their fellow Jewish people and worshipped an executed Roman criminal. You can see how believers could be and were so easily and readily misunderstood and discriminated against. Talk about discrimination in the workplace. If you are discriminated in your workplace uh, against in your work in your workplace based on your religion, you can do what? You can file a complaint. You could even go so far as to file a lawsuit if you really wanted to, based on a violation of your rights of citizenship. That concept was completely non-existent, completely foreign, completely unheard of in this time, in this area and time period. If a potential employer found out that you were a Christian, that was grounds enough for getting fired. You're a Christian, get out of here. With no jobs and no Jewish community to take care of them, our brothers and sisters were truly destitute and truly in need. This extreme poverty went hand in hand with what Jesus describes as hardship or tribulation that we read in verse 9. The Greek word used here is thlipsis, meaning pressure or feeling like you don't have any options, no options whatsoever. It carries the feeling of being hemmed in with no way of escape. That's what, they were, that's what they were dealing with. This was personal claustrophobia with all the feelings that go along with that. Jesus was not beating around the bush, was he? Jesus was not sugarcoating anything. He wanted to tell it plain because it was plain and it was painful. The believers in Smyrna had given their entire lives to Jesus and here they were feeling like they lost everything because of it. What were they supposed to do now? They'd risked their entire lives for the truth and seemingly have gotten nothing in return. Or did they? Jesus reminds them that they have. Even in the midst of extreme poverty, extreme destitution, they were rich, he says. Their faith in the truth has rewarded them with vastly more than anything money can buy. James 2.5 says, Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? See, there's no accident about any of this. Jesus didn't want his children in Smyrna to fall into the trap of being caught up in how little money they had. That was not the point of their lives. 
For even if God allowed them to die from starvation or sickness from their poverty, what would they inherit? They would inherit the richness of his kingdom. The riches of his kingdom, which are worth infinitely more than any peace that comes with having enough money. In truth, believers in Jesus Christ really do have everything. If you have this world, that's all you got. And who is the ruler of this world? Or thinks he is? The devil. Is that what you really want? But believers in Jesus Christ, we've been given everything beyond this world. We have been given the riches of God's grace. We've been given an inheritance with Jesus Christ. We've been given the hope of a heavenly home. We've been given the Holy Spirit inside of us who walks with us every step of the way through this life. People who don't know Jesus, people who don't have Jesus, do not have that. They do not have the Holy Spirit. They do not have the assurance and the peace and the joy that can only come from the Holy Spirit. We have Father God, Almighty God, the creator and king of the universe who owns everything in this world anyways, taking care of us. He is the one who is watching over us. He is the one taking care of us. These are just a few examples of everything that we have as children of God, as believers in Jesus Christ. Those who don't know God don't have any of that. And you guys know this. The peace that can only come from Jesus Christ is worth infinitely more than anything this world can give. Amen? Being able to lay your head down on your pillow at night and, and, and ask forgiveness for your sins for, for, the, for that day. And knowing that no matter if the world just explodes overnight, you're perfectly fine. You know where you're going. That is worth infinitely more than any peace this world can offer to us. Than any, anything the riches of this world can offer to us. In truth, believers in Jesus Christ really do have everything because we have God himself. Jesus wanted to cheer these believers on with the truth that he knew. He knew what they were going through. He knew about everything they were suffering through financially and, 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 and physically and everything that they were going through because of him. He says, I know it. I know what you're going through. I know why you're going through it. I know you're going through it for me. Next, he says in verse 9, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The Jewish community in Smyrna was strong. They're, they enjoyed that relative peace of mind when it came to the government, and they were strong. There was relatively nothing in that world for them to worry about. But the difficulties facing the Christian believers in Smyrna primarily came from the fact that they were not seen as Jewish by the Romans or even the Jewish people themselves. A lot of this persecution was coming from their Jewish brothers and sisters. Now why couldn't the early Christians in Smyrna be covered under the, Jew, the, the umbrella of Judaism? Well, here's a historical tidbit. In 66 AD, the first Jewish rebellion against the Roman Empire began. With the Roman governor over Judea at the time, Gessius Florus, massacring 3,600 citizens of Jerusalem because Jerusalem revolted when he seized money from the temple treasury. 
That ignited Jewish zealots to capture the Roman fortress at Masada and inspired Jerusalem, then in the region of Judea, then, in the re re then uh, beyond that, the region of Galilee, to revolt and start killing Roman soldiers. This started a four-year-long war between the Romans and the Jewish people and a siege of Jerusalem by the Romans that finally ended in 70 AD. You've heard that year before, time and time again, when the Roman general Titus gave the orders to demolish the temple and Jerusalem's walls, leaving only the western wall. And that western wall is the only one that continues today, known today as the Wailing Wall. The catastrophe left about a million Jewish people dead and about 100,000 captured and enslaved. It was a terrible and horrific experience in the history of the Jewish people. Obviously, no Jewish person in his right mind would want to repeat that dreadful nightmare at that point, at the point Jesus is writing to the, to the believers in Smyrna, which was around what? 90 AD, about 20 years after this. So most, if not all, messianic hopes in Judaism were highly discouraged. They were gone. They were nowhere to be found. Nobody wanted to encourage that type of messianic fervor that, that could be misconstrued as revolt again. Think about it. Any beliefs having to do with a messianic king were inherently what? Revolutionary. That's one of the reasons the Jewish leaders pushed for Pontius Pilate to execute Jesus, right? He claims to be king instead of the Roman emperor, instead of Caesar. And what was the group of people who were making it their goal to tell as many people as they could about the Messiah? This misunderstood, maligned, suspicious sect of Judaism called Christianity. So besides the fact that, that the majority of the Jewish leaders during Jesus' time had openly opposed him and killed him and crucified him, the first Jewish revolt made the Jewish community desire to distance themselves from those who were claiming a Messiah had been born, had, been die, had, had died and risen again, and he was the true king over the earth. This distancing was not just, eh, I'm going to kind of, not associate with them. It was much more than that. It, was the, it took the form of slander, took the form of abusive language against the church, mocking, verbally attacking believers in front of their neighbors, friends, and relatives, betraying them to their employers. Remember that? Get fired as soon as your employer found out you were a Christian. So people would betray them to their employers, get them fired. And altogether putting a social stigma and target on believers in Jesus Christ. This was a very real source of persecution and being completely ostracized from the entire society around them. So we don't really understand that. We still consider ourselves Americans. Even as things in, get increasingly and increasingly um, bitter towards us and malicious towards us, we still consider ourselves Americans. They, they had no country, basically, or city. They were ostracized from everyone. They were ostracized from the Roman culture. They were ostracized from the Jewish culture. They had nobody to identify with in this world except for Jesus. 
The Jewish community as a whole was even actively distancing themselves from the church by publicly proclaiming that the Christian church was not a part of them. We have nothing to do with them. They have nothing to do with us. This betrayal by the group the church had once been a part of essentially removed their protection from the civil requirement of worshiping the Roman emperor. Now they didn't have that either. Therefore, this instigated official informers to betray church members to the Roman authorities for not worshiping the emperor. It's the type of thing that continues to happen today in many places around the world. In the underground church, spies sent in to betray Bible-believing Christian brothers and sisters. It continues to this day. But Jesus says, I know all the painful things you're going through. I know all the painful things socially, financially, societally, physically you are going through. I told my disciples, if the world hates you, remember this. Remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it. But guess what? Here's the cold hard truth. You are no longer part of the world. Hate to break it to you. I chose you to come out of the world, and that's why it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. That's just, that's just what's going to happen. We shouldn't be surprised by it. They persecuted, they crucified Jesus. So we should not be surprised when persecution comes against us. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. But they didn't listen to me, so they're not going to listen to you. They will do all of this to you because of me. It has nothing to do with you. They're doing it all because of Jesus, for they have rejected the one who sent me. They've rejected Jesus, and ultimately, they've rejected God. Suffering for Jesus should not come as a surprise for us. It is both a witness to the world and a prescription for our growth. That we can only grow in certain areas through suffering. Do you want enduring hope and to be closer to God? Of course. I think any one of us would say, yes, of course I want that. But having that comes through suffering. We can only have that through suffering. The only way to get there is through suffering. We learn this from Romans chapter 5. We can rejoice too. You know what? Believe it or not, we can also rejoice when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develop strength of character. That would not have happened unless we went through that trouble, that trial. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. If we're just coasting through life, there's no reason to, to question our, our salvation. But when we're in the, in the pit, when we're being, going through the fire, when we're going through that trial, we're going th through that pressure cooker, when we're going through that trouble, and everything is stripped away, and all we have is Jesus, then we know my hope of salvation is sure. Jesus is all I've got, and that's all that matters. It strengthens 
the confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. It never does. Because all it does is lead us closer to God. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. You want to know if God loves you? He's given you his Holy Spirit to remind you that he loves you. For his Holy Spirit to pour that love of God into you. For you to know every minute of every day, God loves me. To be reminded of that fact. Even when you're walking through that incredibly trying time, that heartbreaking time, when you've lost everything, the Holy Spirit is the one who will remind you, you are God's child. You are loved. You are bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus. Hold on. Hold on to him. You have nothing else to hold on to. Only hold on to him. Hold on to the rock. Even though suffering is hard, we can take heart in that there's always a point to it. God is not a malicious God. God is not a pointless God. God does not even rejoice or take pleasure in our suffering. None of that. There's always a point to it. There's always a purpose to it. It is always to be used by God to grow more hope in us, to grow more faith in us, and to developing a deeper relationship with God. You know, I feel, I feel like any one of us would be ashamed if somebody from, if a believer, if a brother or sister from Smyrna just appeared next to me on the stage here and talked about all that they went through and the faith that God developed in them through those experiences, I think all of us would be ashamed. And we, we would think, boy, what little faith I have. Look at all that they went through and all the faith that God grew in them. God will grow faith in us through the things that he leads us through. Verse 10. Do not fear. I love that. How many times does God say in his word, do not be afraid? Do not fear. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. I'm telling you this beforehand, but I don't want you to be afraid of it. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. And you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. I don't think there could be any more encouraging words than that Jesus could give to this church who's about to experience this intense persecution than these. Jesus' message includes a heads-up of sorts to the church in Smyrna. He tells them that the social persecution the believers were facing, it's painful. But what's going to happen is it's going to give way to physical persecution. He says that many of the believers would be thrown into prison for 10 days. Now why the reference for 10 days? Elsewhere in scripture, the term 10 days is used, in fact, five other times. And while it could refer to an actual 10 days, because it's used so many times in scripture, it could also most likely refer symbolically to a limited amount of time. It's not going to go on forever. There will be an end to it. A limited amount of time, 10 days. Some of the believers in Smyrna would be imprisoned for a limited amount of time. It may be limited because they would be freed, or it may be limited in that they would be put to death achieving an eternal freedom from that prison imprisonment. In light of this, however, Jesus' main point is this. Don't be 
afraid. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Faith is called faith because you're determinedly loyal to it. It's not something that you can decide you think one day and you don't the other. That's not faith. Faith is called faith because you're determinedly loyal to it. Even in the midst of this kind of threat, if this same message was given to us here at Fellowship Church, that many of us would be thrown into prison and that many would even be killed for our faith, would you still show up each Sunday? Is your faith so important to you that you would give up everything for it? Every, I'm, I'm talking about everything. Everything for it, including your life. These are questions, albeit hard ones, that we have to ask ourselves. Not only because they may have to be questions that we actually do have to ask ourselves in the coming years, but because they determine the quality and the level of the faith that, are at, that we actually have. If we have to think about it, we say, ah, I don't know. I don't know if it's worth it to me. If our answer is flat out no, with no thought given, then we need to have an honest conversation with God. And we need to ask him, what kind of faith do I really have? Do I even have faith? If I really ask these questions of myself and ask God these questions, and my answer is flat out no, then I really have to ask myself, do I even have faith? Is the threat of social and physical persecution enough to keep you from telling your neighbors, from telling your friends, from telling your coworkers, from telling your family members, the hope that they can also have through a commitment to Jesus Christ. You cannot be comfortable with where you're at in your walk with God if you're not comfortable sharing his message. It's the cold, hard truth. You can't be comfortable where you are in your walk with God if you are not comfortable sharing him with somebody else. The great commission Jesus gives to us in Matthew 28, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach, them these, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, is not optional. We can't opt out from it. We can, it's not dependent upon your calendar. It's not dependent upon your plans. It's not dependent upon your comfort level. It is to be who we are. The Great Commission is to be who we are. All the time. No matter the day of the week or the time of the day. That's why the Apostle Paul tells Pastor Timothy, but can be extended to all of us, be ready in season and out of season. You've got to be ready all the time to share the, the news about Jesus with somebody else and live out your faith. And in all reality, freedom from religious persecution can be detrimental to the church. Think, that, 
That's an odd thing to say. How is freedom from religious persecution detrimental to the church? There's no fierce loyalty to Christ and his truth. Guess what happens? The church can breed people who are wishy-washy, never making a commitment to anything, never wanting to take a stand for anything, leaving when the going gets tough. That's what happens. But let me tell you, brothers and sisters, the world has enough of those people. Let them have them who go back and forth when the going gets tough. The political party you're a part of, they start doing things you don't like, you switch, you switch back. <laughs> Fan clubs of different things. Let the world have that. They have enough wishy-washy people. The church cannot be adding more of those to the mix. We have to be fiercely loyal to Christ. The church needs people of conviction. Those who will stand for the truth of Christ, even in the face of death, and especially in the face of death. Are you that person? You might be thinking to yourself, I picked the wrong Sunday to show up. Are you that person? Jesus gives a promise to the church in Smyrna in verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. And isn't that the greatest hope of all? In other words, if you're harassed, if you're fired, if you're imprisoned, if you're put to death, and you don't give up on Jesus, then on judgment day, Jesus will not give up on you. Jesus tells his followers in Mark 8.38, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, again, in this unfaithful and sinful generation, that's what the world is made up of. The human one, the, the, the Messiah, the, the Redeemer, will be ashamed of that person when he comes in the Father's glory with the holy angels cold hard truth so let's be emboldened to live our faith out no matter what relationships we lose not because i'm saying it but because jesus said it because his word says it no matter what relationships we lose no matter what job we lose no matter what social freedoms we lose no matter what religious freedoms as citizens we lose and no matter the life we may lose let us stay fierce Fiercely loyal to Jesus. Paul again tells Timothy, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity. That's not who we are. That's not why Jesus died on the cross. So that we can remain in fear. But God has given us the Holy Spirit of power and of love, and of self-discipline, or a sound mind. Someone who can think clearly through the things that are going on in this world. Eyes fixed on Jesus, and say, the world can go whatever way it wants to. It can do whatever it wants to. I'm going to do what Jesus wants me to do. I'm going to be who Jesus wants me to be. That's all I'm focused on. And the Holy Spirit is empowering me, giving me the power to do that, giving me the power to share him with somebody else, no matter what it's going to cost me. And he's giving me the love to show to, to no matter who it is, 
And he's given me the sound mind and the self-discipline, not only to walk with him and to deal with different sins and to deal with different temptations, but to think clearly through the things that are going on in this world. So let us, as Christ's church, take a hold of that verse for all it's worth. Let that be who we are. This world, brothers and sisters, is not our home. It's not our home. It is merely a place for God to grow us, prove his faithfulness, and use us to bring more souls into his kingdom. That's all this is. This world is not our home. Don't invest in it. Don't hitch anything to it. This world is going to get burned up. All that will last is what is done for eternity. All that will last is what is done for Jesus. And then no matter what happens to us in this world, for our faith, at the end of all of it, as Jesus promises the church in Smyrna at the end of verse 11, we are promised an eternity spent with Jesus. And that's all that matters, right? That is all that matters. So take these words and make them who you are. Make them your life. The life redeemed by Jesus is not one that is to be hidden away. How many times do we sing this as kids? Or we taught our kids to sing this. Don't hide your light under a basket, but let your light shine. We tell our kids to not do that. We have them sing the song, and then what do we do? We turn around and do exactly that. Don't hide your light under a basket, but set it on display in this world for everyone to see, to point everyone we come in contact with to Jesus. The life redeemed by Jesus is not to be lived out in fear. What is causing you fear right now? If you think to yourself right now, this is what is causing me fear. You might be sitting here, and I want to ask you that question. You might be watching this online later, and I want you to ask that, yourself that same question. What is causing me fear right now? Guess what? Get rid of it. The thing that is causing you fear, surrender it to Jesus right now. Because Jesus did not die on the cross for you to continue to live in that fear. Jesus lives so that you will be empowered by his Holy Spirit and not have that fear, to be released from that fear, to be freed from that fear, to live in the power and the courage and the boldness of Jesus Christ. Amen? Whatever that is. There are a lot of things that we could be afraid of right now. There are a lot of things the world tells us you should be afraid of right now. You should be afraid of this pandemic. You should be afraid of the economy right now. You should be afraid of this. You should be afraid of that. Don't listen to them. There is nothing that we need to be afraid of right now because we have Jesus. We have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and our eternal home is sure. And guess what? Anything that happens to us in this life, whether we get COVID or not, whether we lose our job or not, whether we lose this, that, the other thing, whether we lose our lives, whether we lose a loved one, whatever it is, Jesus is the one that is in control of our life. So why are we trying to control anything in our lives? Let it go. Give it to Jesus and live for him because he's the one in control of your life anyways. Not only that, Jesus is not the source of fear. Whatever fear you have right now, whatever is causing you fear, I can guarantee you this. Jesus is not the source of that fear. What does Jesus always say? Don't be afraid 
about this. Don't fear about this. That's what Jesus always says. The thing you're afraid of right now is not coming from Jesus. Jesus is not the source of that. Who is the one who always wants to keep us in fear? The enemy of our souls. So, brothers and sisters, who are we listening to? Who are we listening to? Are we listening to the one who only wants to come and steal and kill and destroy? Or are we listening to the good shepherd, the one who leads us, the one who provides for us, the one who protects us? Who are we listening to? Listening to fear, brothers and sisters. And I tell you this because it comes out of God's word, and I want you to know this. Listening to fear is listening to the enemy of your soul. Listening to fear is listening to the enemy of your soul. Instead, we are given the Holy Spirit of power, of love, and of a sound mind, self-discipline. What is your life all about? Is your life living in the power of the Holy Spirit? Is it? Is your life living in the power of the Holy Spirit? Is your life living out your life in the power and the boldness of the third person of the Trinity who indwells you? Is that how you're living? Is that who you're living for? Is that who you're being filled by and emboldened by? Living our lives in the faith of the one who saved us from the powers of darkness and of hell itself by sacrificing himself on our behalf is the only one to live our lives for, is the only one to listen to. He's the only one worth listening to and living for. Here's the cold, hard truth. Those who give up on Jesus in this life, even in the face of hardship, destitution, or even death, will face the second death or eternal separation from God because they didn't really believe in Jesus. They didn't really put their faith in him. Those who don't, those who, those who don't give up on Jesus, who remain steadfast to him, will have an eternity spent with God. And what is our life on this earth? That's it, right there. <laughs> That's it. Eternity goes on forever. What are you living your life for? The right here and now or for eternity? Jesus says that right there in verse 11. Don't worry about what happens to you in this life. Don't worry about what may befall you in this life, what you may lose in this life. Worry about what eternity, what kind of eternity is awaiting you. That's what you should be worried about. Here's what must be the driving force of our everyday lives. Every decision we make, whether seemingly small or big, what we choose to think about and what we must focus on every day. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, you must take up your cross daily, and you must follow me. That's it. It's very simple. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what, what, really, what do you benefit? What do you really get if you gain the whole world, but you are yourself lost or destroyed? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message, 
The Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Believe it or not, your life is much, much bigger than you think it is. You might have a 9 to 5 life, Monday through Friday life, working to the weekend life. That is just, that's a very uh, narrow way of looking at things. Your life is much bigger than you think it is. You are an integral part of the overarching plan of God for this world. And what you choose to do with, in, and through your everyday life, with every decision you make, has eternal ramifications. Both for your soul and for the souls of those you're connected to in this earthly life. I want you to see beyond what is right in front of your face right now. Beyond that. And how big of a part you play in God's overarching plan for this world. And all of us together make up his church. So let us be a church who clings to, not to worldly or material things, not to peace of mind in this world, not to anything in this life, but to the riches we receive because of our faith in Christ and what we have awaiting us. Let us be a church who carries on Jesus' message, even in the midst of social persecution, even in the midst of any kind of persecution that may be, and very well may be coming down the pike for us in the coming days. Let us be a church who is fiercely loyal to Christ in his truth. Fiercely loyal, letting go of ourselves and giving it all to him. And let us take as many souls as we can into the next world. Let us live our lives for Christ fully, fully to the fullest extent we possibly could, filled with the boldness, filled with the power, filled with the faith, filled with the love, and filled with the sound mind that Jesus gives to us to do exactly that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words of encouragement to the church in Smyrna and for these words of encouragement to us as a church. I pray that we would move on into the future, having no clue what awaits us in this world, but knowing intimately well who does know. Holding fast with confidence to the one who holds our souls in his hand, and no one can, can take them out. Lord, thank you for the tremendous peace you give to us. Because when you really stop and think about it, fluffy things, nice-sounding things don't cut it in this world. It's only the basic foundational truth of who you are, who you are in our lives, what you've done for us, and what you've given to us that gives us any kind of peace, that gives us any kind of foundation, any kind of anchor to cling to. Lord, I thank you that one of the things that has been coming out of this pandemic is it's stripped a lot from a lot of people, and it showed us what we really have and and, and if we really have a faith in you. And Lord, in the coming days, as more and more persecution may very well be coming down the pike, I pray that you would renew that strength and that power within us to remain staunchly and fiercely loyal to you and your truth. Because we know that if we do that, no matter what happens to us in this life, we will have an eternity spent with you. And that is worth infinitely more than anything else that we could have in this world. And I pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.